Training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Pendola Project. I'm your host, Matt Pendola, along with Mr. Billy Haug. What's up? And so, Billy, we're talking specifically about concurrent training today. For our listeners, that's you guys. So what is that, Billy? Yeah, what the heck is concurrent training? It's a good question. Uh, Usually it's just what we use in the literature to define when you're doing two different types of training at the same time. So in this case, we'll be doing endurance training along with strength training or hypertrophy training. And that's basically all it means. So endurance training, let's talk about that, dissect that for for a minute. Sure. So endurance is innate. That's our new sort of slogan or motto that you came up with in brainstorming one day. What does endurance mean to us? Yeah, endurance could cover a broad array of, of tasks or performances. It could be something like a 10K run, or maybe you want to be able to ruck with a 20-pound pack for for a few hours or so. You know, you're training to, to hike the, the Appalachian Trail or something like that. Those all fall under the umbrella of, of endurance training. Um, and of course, you could choose your modality too. It could be rowing, biking, swimming. Um, really, there's a whole bunch of endless examples. The main thing, I guess, is what it's not. And that would be force production in a specific context over a matter of seconds. So a power lifter competing, so doing one rep max for the bench press, the squat, the deadlift. That's still strength, just like endurance is, is strength endurance. But the force production is dependent on the context. Yeah, that's so I just wanted everyone to sort of get that uh, concept because when I'm talking to athletes or sometimes other parents or coaches, the subject of endurance, I think, is a little bit muddled. And, and the, endurance can include a 100-meter sprint because after just essentially 40, 50, maybe 60 meters for a world-class athlete – then endurance actually needs to start to kick in at that point. So there's endurance is a pretty broad spectrum when you think about it. Anywhere from really the 100 meters to 100 miles still requires endurance. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. So how do we train for endurance as far as the athlete listening here? We're going to assume that we're talking about things that are going to be over several minutes this is going to be a longer haul we're going to say an hour or more just to just to kind of keep it well let's say 10 10k is is definitely an endurance event for a lot of people taking 40 50 maybe close to 60 minutes to do a 10k even right so that that's we can we can kind of settle i think on that we're going to talk about things that we are doing that's going to take about an hour or more though right yeah for sure and and a a lot of the times using kind of extreme examples is the best way to to make an example of this so yeah we're most typical races you see you know your local city or whatever will be a 5k 10k maybe even an 8k or some odd distance something like i'm just thinking to that eight and a half hour plank or whatever that, that guy did for the world record i mean he was just holding an isometric position, right? Maybe shifting a little bit here and there, but still an endurance event because he's going for eight and a half hours. Or, for instance, I have a buddy of mine who might be trying to set the fastest known time for the Tower Worm Trail. And that could take, you know, it's a 165 or 168 mile course or something like that. So that's going to take, you know, a multitude of days as well. So those those are all your endurance contexts. And, and to train for something like that, you're going to have to experiment uh, just like you would with, well, not experiment, but use topics of progressive overload and periodization to build yourself up. You know, you're not going to immediately start doing singles at 85% of your one rep max to train for the squat, right? You might start in a more hypertrophy block where you're doing something in the 60 to 75, 75% range for reps of 8 to 12 and then build up your volume over time so you can tolerate it. And same thing with building up mileage or minutes. I know you like to go off minutes a lot too for the endurance thing in question. So let's bring up, we were working with an athlete yesterday and he's actually, he's coming off his first year from West Point 
and we know what his test is, his his score is, but he wants to improve the that score. In particular, one of his strengths would be the deadlift. That was a, a good lift for him. But when you asked me yesterday, what are we doing for his hex bar deadlift? I said, I have no idea. Now, this is also the first training session where we're, we're doing the deadlift. But I wasn't about to go off of his three to five rep uh, sub max lifts for the deadlift and make a guesstimate from there. So let's just explain a little bit to the listeners why. I, first of all, I don't think that mo- most people really have any clue what their one rep max is. Uh, I certainly, uh, for me personally, it's uh, and I even as a professional, as a trainer, it's, it's really not something that I put a lot of stock into anyway. And, and again, I, I know that uh, we live in a little bit of a different world here where uh, endurance athletes are a little bit more of, of who we tend to gravitate towards when we're thinking this way. But we also train some uh, amazing uh, athletes like Gabby Williams, who's in right now. And um, I'm going to ask her to come on to the podcast next week. So hopefully you guys will be uh, ready to listen to her talk. Um, but um, she's extremely explosive athlete. Again, still owns the world record in the high jump for juniors. And those type of athletes are super impressive to watch. But I've never put too much stock into how heavy we can get on a deadlift. It's more about the speed of the bar and those type of things. But anyways, um, I wanted to just kind of clarify a couple of points here that we do want to look at endurance a little bit differently when we train an athlete, yet we want to have still that sort of that sub-maximal or really attention to focus and detail in each repetition, in each lift. So to take it a step further, I said, well, we'll we'll, we'll set him up really at a much lower uh, rep, uh, much lower weight than his one rep max or three to five rep max. But we're going to look at when we start to see over time under tension and over total reps when we may start to have some defeated mechanics and then go from there. And and I looked at your notes last night in uh, in the journal, just seeing that it did take quite a few sets before we started depreciating in our in our reps. And so that gives us good information. I think that's a good sort of launching point to talk about here how we're going to apply this knowledge into an athlete's training. Right. And Gabby is, is, is definitely an excellent example because for someone like her, she still needs endurance, obviously. She's going to be tr- playing four quarters of a basketball game and be going for an, an hour or more at a time. But that is secondary to what she needs to focus on in the gym as far as what you just said, increasing her explosiveness and her power movements because those are the things that are going to most likely give her the best results in terms of uh, injury risk reduction and also able to maybe, you know, increase her vertical and some of those kind of, th- of things. Uh, her endurance training, I wouldn't, I would argue she doesn't have to do as much extra. The conditioning is just going to come from playing the sport itself. And anyone who's <laughs> been detrained for a little bit knows this. If you haven't, if your main sport's running or, or playing basketball and especially with, with quarantine and everything, if you've been had the chance to do that, uh, soccer would be another example and all of a sudden things start opening up again and now you're back on the field back on the court whatever you're going to feel a little out of breath most likely if you haven't been keeping up that really specific type of, of training for a while so same way you would ease back into it you wouldn't automatically start playing you know multiple games in a day you'd probably have to progressively overload and get back your fitness a little bit so I think that's important too when we start to review a couple studies from this year that looked at concurrent training um a quick caveat before we even dive into them is with most of these studies, the researchers are looking mostly at what the concurrent training, so again, endurance and strength training combined, what's that, what's that doing in terms of strength and hypertrophy results? And that is, I don't think counter is the right word, but opposite of what we're trying to do simply because we work with endurance athletes. So from our perspective, we want endurance to still be the primary outcome although we want to make the strength auxiliary and supportive of those goals versus someone who wants to build, he wants to get as jacked as possible, you know, just pure anabolic God status in the gym, just uh, being the strongest and most ripped person of themselves. 
while also incorporating cardio and getting some aerobic benefits. So I think that's something we need to clarify. Yeah. And I, one thing I want to clarify as well is I think that there is a bad rap around strength training and a lot of, well, endurance athletes, runners that come to me and are really honestly afraid they're going to bulk up. They're afraid, even if they're not afraid they're going to bulk up. Um, I actually um, talked to Logan Miller, who was, she actually went to the Olympic trials in the pole vault years, years ago. I was um, lucky enough to watch both her and Gabby Williams at the same Olympic trials. It was pretty cool. But uh, Logan was actually initially afraid coming into uh, my facility that I was going to do work to make her even uh, like thicker, I guess you would say. Now, she was a gymnast beforehand. And, and again, that's pole vaulting is, is definitely that that is an explosive uh, sport. But you actually do have to have a decent amount of endurance. Why? Because you are practicing again and again and again and again. And so on your 20th, 25th attempt, if you don't have that endurance, you start to uh, lose your your mental and your physical focus. You start to become more fatigued. You can't get in as much quality practice that way either. So there there is actually some endurance benefits there as well. But I I tell my athletes all the time, I want to help you serve serve you in here so that what you're doing out of here is more effective. And I think it does get a bad rap a lot of times to strength training because these poor athletes are training wrong. They're they're coming into a gym and they're doing hypertrophy reps, muscle growth intended reps, repetitions, which in itself is not bad. It's just generally they're doing too much volume too soon. I tell my runners that all the time. You wouldn't just start running 100 miles a week. But you're going to come into a gym and haven't lifted a weight in maybe ever, really, um, not at least with uh, that type of focus. And you're going to do 300 reps in your first day. <laughs> it's that, and you said it. It's not that this type of training is inherently bad, dangerous, counterproductive, whatever. It's more likely that the more you introduce new variables and throw more things into the equation, the more you have to be cognizant of, is this good programming? Because if it's crappy programming, then you're going to get a crappy result. And I guess I'll just dive, start diving into some of these papers. Again, these were recent. So this one was in March of 2020. It was Tim et al. And it's called Differences in Lower Limb Strength and Structure After 12 Weeks of Resistance, Endurance, and Concurrent Training. So kind of the key takeaways here are that three groups performed only resistance training, only endurance training, or a combination of resistance and endurance training, so concurrent training, for 12 weeks. The resistance training and concurrent training groups experienced similar hypertrophy changes, which they measured in thickness of the vastus lateralis and biceps femoris, and strength gains. So this was measured with bench press, leg press, and the extension one rep max. However, some metrics here uh, in the concurrent training group um, displayed some slight regression between week six and eight and week 12. And this kind of mirrors some of the prior research, which you referenced to that makes endurance athletes kind of scared of strength training. And they think to themselves, oh, this is going to destroy my running gains. You know, I'm going to slow down for whatever reason. Um, and that's really only in the context that we just discussed if it's poorly programmed. So they can, the authors conclude that intense endurance and resistance training may not be able to con coexist over the long term. So that's why for training an athlete who's getting into their peak season, we're going to back off the strength training and the resistance training because their endurance training is likely getting really intense. I have a few different running certifications I've gotten over the years, and, and I'm not going to mention which one this is because I will say that I really deeply respect each of those coaches that taught the courses, and I, I don't want this to become uh, where we're throwing stones at, at other theories and other training practices and things like this, but I sat in one of these certifications being told as a group that doing resistance training while you're trying to run X amount of volume is just plain bad for the athlete. And it was so wrong. The statement was, was so wrong. And of course the, the instructor that I did respect and, and I, I still respect, but I, he didn't really know who I was. And uh, so afterwards we just kind of had that conversation 
I after talking to him for a while, I could see that he still he had just been doing this this way his way for 20 30 years i guess and so he still had too many reservations about it. i didn't win him over i don't think but i did at least maybe get him to think that it's not such a black and white deal right but th- why i say that or why i bring that up because oftentimes i will have that conversation to say with my runners don't start this program right now. I will give you some protocol to do and maybe some isometrics, which, um, again, you know, it's kind of fresh on my mind because in the gym right now, a lot of our athletes coming uh, back into the gym after having a few months off, they have been actually building up their mileage, which has been great. And they've been able to do their daily protocol and build up their mileage. And so they're feeling really good about things. But instead of just throwing them right into the resistance programming that they would normally do at this time of year, what we've done instead is we're really emphasizing a lot more eccentrics, isometrics, and that's a that's another podcast is going to be coming up that we're talking about. And I do have an article coming out in Oxygen Magazine in a few months. I'll make sure you guys get the link for that. But uh, it's really, really impressive to see how our athletes are moving right now. But more importantly, I think we want to keep them feeling good and keep them moving in that direction where they have adjusted to their volume. They're, they're feeling strong. We don't want to get them so sore that they can barely move and that they can't finish their long run because that means a lot to them. And it takes that much more away from them when they can't complete these things that they feel all of a sudden now like they're defeated, whereas they were getting in some good runs for a while. And then, oh, I started this strength program and I can't get my long run anymore. And you know what? They would be right. I shouldn't be taking that away from them when it's in important there are times though in a training progression when i really believe that the runner should give more of the emphasis to strength and so that's the conversation i have with my athletes but for example if they're within even a few months of their primary goal I I don't really like to mess with that process at that point. So I generally wait until they're done with their main event or their championship race for the year. And then we start a a new uh, introduction to strength in that system. In the meantime, when you're doing isometrics or when you're doing more of what we kind of call sensory isometrics and you're training more of your nervous system, your responses, but then also just some some good old-fashioned uh, corrective exercise work to help to mitigate response and, and, and that also might help to prevent pain or, or injuries. Th- those things can be done daily, and it, I, I don't believe that that takes away from the nervous system or breaks the body down enough for it to interrupt training at all. Maybe a little bit of stiffness, but that's it. So I just want to bring those things up because, of course, there's just so much misunderstanding about that, and I do think it's our responsibility as coaches to actually at times say, hey, hey, I'd I'd love to work with you right now, but actually it's better if we wait or or it's time to prioritize the strength even. And you have to trust me on this for at least the next three to six weeks. The strength is at least going to be an equal opportunity. And then once we have that established, then, of course, the running is is the main focus for the rest of the year. Yeah. And. It's the responsibility of the coach to program in an intelligent manner, just as you discussed, rather versus, okay, coming off of COVID, coming off of not uh, resistance training or playing sports, uh, no barbell in your hands for several weeks. I have a good idea. Let's uh, load 75% on there, do 10 sets to failure of something with a huge range of motion, <laughs> you know, deficit RDLs. Uh, let's just get you soared to the next dimension. Like, I want you to have an out-of-body experience when it comes to DOMS. And of course, they call you the next day and they're like, coach, I don't think my hamstrings exist anymore. What did you do? So (laughs) again, that's technically their concurrent training, but they're doing it very poorly. And it would be obviously uh, (laughs) the onus would be on you of taking taking responsibility for that. And obviously, I just gave a ridiculous example because we know that you wouldn't do that. But it's just it's just, uh, I guess, a way of saying these these things can be done uh very incorrectly from time to time and when you talked about that study before 
uh, you mentioned the VLs, vastus lateralis. So that's the outside of your thigh, guys. And then I think you said, what, bicep femoris? Yes. So that's that's the uh, part of the hamstring. So the a point is those are, those are things that you really want to have strong, obviously. But if, if those are – if you destroyed those muscles, you know – and and you can't you can't barely move and cop a squat the next day you're certainly not going to have a very good run so that's why we're talking about a slower introduction into these things and certainly like anything else if you're increasing volume in the gym and you're increasing uh, intensity you're increasing the amount of weight you're lifting and you're doing your longest run of your life that weekend it's just not a smart recipe that would be an example of non-functional overreaching so you're pushing yourself to the point where you're leaving all gains off the table and now you're just regressing or pushing yourself backwards yeah and overreaching guys i mean you all probably have a good concept now just by listening to us but this is very common actually we we see this all the time in in my industry as a coach but just in the u.s actually especially i think a lot of american athletes have been uh overtrained and held back in some ways because we tend to have a lot of moderately hard days, no really easy days. And because of that, when, when we think we're working hard and hard is relative again, is you know, what your fitness is, is and your level. But when you're putting in a quality day, give yourself a fighting chance to get the best version of you you can on that day by actually having a full tank entering that day and that's that's again something i'm always thinking about when we're programming so when i say most of your the running is that's the priority for my athletes that means they are going to run before they come in to see me and then they may have four to six hours to uh, to get something to eat, take a nap optimally, and then come in. But if they don't, sometimes, for example, when I was training high school athletes, they'd come in right after their uh, session on the track. And what I would have to do there is just be super, super picky and choosy about how, what we wanted to get after and really keep it short and sweet. And more often than than not, it would end up being more of a sort of a mobility and let's just kind of if decompress this day and work on isometrics. Again, things like that that require some good accessory strength in the, and uh, help the muscles out that are supporting the primary movers. And so that's there's a huge benefit to that. And uh, I would say that just having even one good quality strength session, once you've established your base, about one per week or even arguably 10 days. And I think you're going to be pretty happy being able to maintain the strength you establish, but we can't skip it all together. So that's, you know, it seems to me that it's a yo-yo, like either an athlete is just doing all sorts of conditioning or skill set work or they're doing or they're living in the gym and the athlete that's that's just attacking the gym and putting everything they have into their training in here it, it that's that's awesome as long as this is they're they're not in a hard progression in their skill set or in their sport so you know again that's where we have to communicate and see what the athlete actually needs from us and there's there's such a big I think almost like it's shameful if you if you don't end up feeling like you have to throw up at the end of this session, right? And so we've always if made that. If you didn't bleed, it didn't count, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> if your soul didn't leave your body, you didn't go hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've always I've I've always laughed at the uh, I, I've gotten a decent amount of criticism over the years, and especially from other trainers, they think they're insulting me or other coaches by uh, by making fun of the fact that my athletes don't have as impressive of a bench press or they or, or a deadlift or a squat and and those and i'm like but who's the fastest athlete out there well and <laughs> you know, we want to train hard of course that's what you have to do if you want to improve and we're gonna you know we're gonna train hard but we also want to have fun too it, you know i'm not gonna come in here and be like i'm gonna die on this leg press today this could be the last time i ever step in the foot in the gym because i'm going to absolute failure on the squats like who wants to say that man i don't want to die in the gym like <laughs> we got to remember we're trying to have fun here too dude i did so many strength sessions when i was younger to like to failure right i mean and to the point 
point where I definitely, definitely had a hard time walking the next day and, and, and just would destroy myself and then miss like three or four days of, even if I went into the gym, it was like, I'm not, I'm not worth anything today. I'm just going to, and then you feel defeated. So again, you're, you're in that vicious circle, but yeah, I've, I've watched way too many athletes. Look, I can't say that my athletes will never get injured. You can't make those kind of statements, but I will say that I feel good. I sleep well at night knowing that we did our due diligence and we set up our athletes for success the best we can. And then from there, you know, then you leave it to the, uh, you know, to, to the powers that be, I guess. hundred percent, hundred percent. So before we move to the next and final study, just to conclude the one we went over, Basically, resistance training and endurance training can peacefully coexist without encroaching on each other for around six to eight weeks and maybe shorter for well-trained lifters. But past that, you probably need to choose something to prioritize. Again, pretty straightforward. And here we're going we're gonna to choose most likely an endurance event because that's what our athletes are training for. Uh, so move to the next one. Uh, so this was adaptations to strength training uh, differ between endurance trained and untrained women. So this was really cool because you don't really see a lot of studies uh, looking at strictly a, a population of women. So I thought this was pretty cool. And this was in May of 2020. So uh, very recent. And the takeaways here was that concurrent training did not impair the adaptations and the ability to de- develop force at low contraction velocities or muscle hypertrophy. Again, so this was in a group of women who traditionally trained endurance with no strength training and then another group of women who did nothing at all and then they both took up a strength training program for the study so they were basically both untrained as far as resistance training goes so concurrent training attenuated strength training associated changes in the ability to develop force at higher muscular contraction velocities so this is what we've seen in the past so basically high contraction velocities would be something really powerful so if i'm trying to do a one rep max snatch or clean and jerk that's very arguably one of the most powerful movements in sports so yeah if i'm prioritizing marathon training or 10k training i'm not going to be able to to lift anywhere near a one rep max in the snatch as i would if i was only prioritizing olympic weightlifting so i think that should be pretty clear for for the listeners but uh definitely something to consider when when you are concurrent training, I think you'd agree here that your your power, your max power, is is likely not where it would be if you're training solely for that. Sure, and looking at things like the speed of the bar, I oftentimes find that my my endurance athletes are a different animal, right? And so the numbers really don't match up first of all so for example if you're supposed to be within a certain range because of what you can lift 10 times then that's supposed to be about 80 percent of your one rep max and then you can use an algorithm to figure out what your one to three reps should be or your three to five reps should be that sort of thing it doesn't seem to match up that well with endurance athletes and i think it's pretty answer is pretty simple they tend to have more slow twitch muscle fibers so another thing that i kind of do is i throw the reps out in here we go off of time and so it's not a long time i i, I want to stress here with my endurance athletes they should be training explosively too they should be training for speed of the bar, not only speed of the bar. Again, we, we train, we have an eccentric focus exercise. We have an isometric focus exercise where the joint doesn't move, for example, or eccentric when you're moving very slowly, uh, returning to your, your, your uh, starting position, right? So that would be, for example, doing, let's say, a pull-up on the way down you're taking that as slow as you can an isometric example would be say going into that pull-up position and then at the bar with the chest to the bar you're holding that position as long as you can i I think we haven't really explained that so i think that that's important to go over but then the explosive part this is would be a good example is i don't believe in doing explosive pull-ups right so uh, again that that's a sport somewhere right that's a crossfit sport and if and if i have an athlete coming in for that first of all i'm going to point them to a different gym because it's not what i do but i would also argue that just it's 
pretty terrible for the shoulder um, and possibly for at least for me there's going to be a lot better movements that we can do to to really gain that type of explosiveness so what do we do we go to a row instead and we'll do explosive rows like pen lay rows okay or what we call dlc trx or suspension trainer rows so in that row position we're still getting a lot of great training but we're in a very joint friendly position we can be very explosive and actually use the glutes quite a bit in um in the right positioning and then i actually would prefer doing something more explosive overhead preferably even with like a med ball so that's just an example of how we still want to be explosive but you mentioned before a lot of these lifts the athletes are doing uh, olympic type of lifts are highly technical and also they're just not in general endurance athletes aren't going to have that kind of speed on the bar because they are a little bit slower twitch muscle fiber so in, in general i don't go off of numbers and i throw the the reps out and i go off of time and then when they're complete with say 10 seconds on something very explosive i'm maybe counting the reps for them and then i kind of have an idea okay you just did six reps and i really wanted like at least one rep per second or more so without even saying anything i'll just make the movement a little bit more regressed and then i can see that their speed is up and then there now the bar so to speak is traveling fast and so that's just an example about how we still we need to train like athletes endurance athletes are athletes just like an explosive athlete so court sport field sport athlete doesn't matter if you're you're doing something for more than 10 seconds or not you're an athlete and you need to train that way so i believe in training the, all the nonlinear progressions regardless of the sport but of course i do think there's there's so many great exercises out there but there are exercises that i think are not preferable for somebody who's not going to spend a lot of time learning the skill sets sure and I'm glad you brought that up because we don't want to paint a false dichotomy here and say, oh, I'm an endurance athlete, all power training, throw it down the toilet, you know, screw it, <laughs> it's off the table. No, we still want our athletes doing that. You just have to realize if, you know, you were a gymnast before that and you were doing explosive movements and at one point you did a 45-inch box jump, if you're, if you're training specifically for for a 1,500-meter time trial or a 10-kilometer race, you're not going to be able to do a 45 inch box jump at that same time, most likely, unless you're like a uh, freaking Greek God or something like that. Yeah. And I don't, I, it doesn't matter to me, even if you have that capability, you need to progress. 45 inch box jump is advanced and you yeah. need to progress. And I, I, I say that because we talk about keep it simple all the time in here, but it's almost like there's some kind of a shame in using the first box, right? Or even using like boxes, just like three inches off the ground to start or six inches off the ground. It's the, it, whatever is going to be appropriate for you to give you enough stress for your body to respond. Guess what? By doing a higher box, not only have you gone past that point where uh, there's diminishing returns now, you're not going to get more out of it just because you're jumping higher necessarily, but especially because if you can't overcome that uh, position, if you're coming off of the box and your knees are kissing each other, you're, you're not getting anything out of that and you are risking injury. Definitely. And I'm also glad that you brought up, I just used the Olympic lifts, uh, in, in my scenario, because that's something, and this is not to say my technique is, is excellent at all. It, it's definitely not, but I've trained it and learned about it to the point where I'm comfortable doing the incorporating it into my program. Whereas someone who has no training in that modality, I wouldn't use at all because they are highly technical lifts and they're likely not going to be auto-regulated in the same way, uh, at least by RPE. That's something like a normal deadlift would because the technique and the balance play such an a component there that an rp7 and a deadlift isn't going to necessarily be the same with an rp7 in the snatch but in these studies they they have, of course they don't use those unless they're using trained olympic athletes so and an rp is rate of perceived effort right yeah 
so in 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 the in the study with the woman, for example, they used squat jump and counter movement jump, just like in the previous study. So those are two movements we can use to analyze power, and they're super simple. It's exactly what it sounds like. You're squatting and then jumping off the ground, <laughs> which is kind of the same thing you're doing in a snatch or clean. You're pulling the bar and moving it vertically by jumping, but uh, we digress. So I guess I'll go into the results real quick so we can finish this off, but. The body mass remained unchanged in both groups, and 11 weeks of strength training led to similar increases in leg lean mass, one rep max uh, in the one-legged leg press, maximal isometric torque, and progression in six rep max load from week two to week 11. The intervention led to improved squat jump and counter movement jump in both groups, and the increase in squat jump was larger in the strength-only group than in the endurance plus strength training group. So that basically summarizes what we just covered. And the main takeaways was that this study showed that 11 weeks of strength training led to similar improvements in leg muscle mass and development of force at low contraction velocities in endurance athletes maintaining their normal endurance training and in untrained individuals. And the authors conclude that concurrent training did not impair adaptations in the ability to develop force at low contraction velocities and muscle hypertrophy as evident from the increases in one rep max. So basically, the amount of concurrent training performed is probably more of an important factor in as far as impairments to strength training adaptations than concurrent training in and of itself. So I want to break down just a couple things because I, I know that it's important for us that we have science behind our training. So if you didn't connect with what Billy just said, that's okay. That's That's kind of why we talk about it afterwards. But... I'm gonna just going to give a couple examples. I have a couple of court sport athletes coming in. I'm testing their, their vertical. So they have a counterbalance that they're doing uh, to try to get as much height off the ground as they can, okay? And I use what's called a vertex. So they hit the veins, see how high they can get on that counterbalance. And then we also do one on what we call non-counterbalance. So non-counterbalance is when they gonna, they're going to get down into a squat position or even have them touch a box, okay? So they have about half their body weight sitting on the box, and then they take off from that position and jump as far as they can, as high as they can. So what I often find, though, is that they're, the, the two numbers are pretty far apart, okay? And if you have a number that's pretty close together, you'll have an indication of what they haven't been doing in training is my point. So uh, believe it or not, I had an athlete that was less than an inch apart on the two. So if you imagine that, guys, when you do something that's a counter movement, that means you're allowed to spring. You're allowed to load and jump, okay? Whereas a non-counter, having half your body weight on the box, and then you pause there and you wait there until I say jump, you've lost that load, that spring, okay? So if you're a very strong athlete, you won't fall apart there as much, okay? But if your counter jump is sub-maximal, and and that's what we're usually looking at, in other words, your vertical jump or your approach— is is that important? Of course, it's very important to know in strength training because we have to know essentially is does this athlete need to get stronger? Okay, so in other words, their non-counter was like way, way different than their counter jump. Their counter jump was much, much better. So they're really good at using their springs. And that's typical of younger athletes especially, okay? But as my athletes get stronger and older and I have collegiate athletes in coming in, it actually tends to be flipped around because the funny part to me is they do so much strength training in college in their programming that involves things like squats and uh, parallel and, and, and below, which I have, I have feelings on that depending on their femur length, et cetera. But uh, I know for Gabby, way back in her Yukon days, she actually lost about six inches on her vertical by doing a lot of these heavy lifts that were slow 
And so that's what I'm circling back to. It wasn't that the movement was bad. It was that the bar was moving slow, but they were more concerned with how much weight was on the bar. And on top of things, she has a long, long femur. Remember, that's what makes her a good jumper in the first place. So you have to consider those those type of things. And I would just wrap up with this. Hopefully, I've given you an idea about what the differences are. A jump rope. Jump rope is my one of my favorite tests, if not my favorite test, to give all athletes so if I have an athlete who cannot hold a good rhythm and they can't have this, that very, very, um, it's, it's, it's a loss of heat between muscle contractions is what you're really looking for over time when you're doing something like jump rope. So as, as um, I test my athletes, it depends on their sport. If I have um, somebody who's an endurance athlete, it'll be a five-minute test if, if they're ready for that. And if it's somebody who's more explosive like Gabby, then it's, it tends to be about a minute long for that test, okay? So that, that's, uh, that's the difference. But both, they have to show me they have the coordination and the efficiency just being a stiff spring off the ground. And I'm amazed at how many athletes can't do that when they start out, but yet they're more interested in high-end plyometrics. Well, and we shouldn't be surprised at all that she lost some height on her vertical if she was training in a load and rep range that was meant to maximize absolute force production. So again, high loads in the three to five rep range, especially for a trained athlete like her, is her low bar back squat going to go up 100%. But if she's not doing any sort of power training alongside that, yeah, she's either going to not improve her vertical or it's going to decrease. And and by the way, though, uh, it, the reason why I brought up vertical in particular is, and you already know the answer to this, Billy, but is vertical important for a distance runner? Do we need to know that? No. <laughs> okay. So actually, I got you there because... We actually do look at that, but I take the skill out though. So the so if I'm if I'm talking about sort of an approach like a layup or something, it's not really fair. You have to have some skill set for that as well. Okay. But what we do look is the difference again between just a standing counter and non counter jump, even with endurance athletes. And uh, we have seen, and this is this is um, something that uh, is well reviewed by elite marathoners. That when their vertical goes up by a few inches, so I'm trying to remember. I don't want to make up names, but it was. Um, I I I know that the, that there were several studies done with. Um, uh, oh, okay. I'm blanking on the name right now, actually, but she was a world record holder in the marathon, uh, back in my day. And she was three inches higher in her vertical over a two year period. Okay. And that correlated to speed development. So does, in other words, does improving your vertical transfer to better speed or higher velocity? Yes, it does and and vice versa so that's that actually is an important thing that we look at i just don't take skill set into account that's why i just have you know it's just relative to them too and of course it depends on whether or not you're still growing and that sort of thing so you have to you have to look at what their total vertical is uh not just off the ground but um compared to where they can reach overhead so So a lot of things to consider that delta in the vertical that change in the vertical that's the marker we're looking at Uh, is that what you're saying in response to some sort of speed strength training right yeah so i agree with you i i kind of misinterpreted the question i i was thinking more of like do we care absolutely how high they can jump as like if okay you need to be able to dunk a basketball right like probably not but is is the vertical useful as far as measuring differences in correlation with a training program to but yeah but no i so i i'm I have to say this though; it just reminds me of you say uh, say this. There was a coach that that um, was talking to one of the athletes that I was testing this way, and it was another running coach. And she was like, "What is he? What? You're not a basketball player. What does he care about that for? No, no, no. Go to somebody else. You know." And the point is, there's so much misconception because we just we don't. Um, it gets lost in translation. Is my point mm-hmm. because again, if I'm if I'm looking if I'm testing you uh, on a skill set, that's not fair. But that's not what I'm testing for. So it's all in context, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I guess we'll finish up with one last thing. 
So with this study that uh, with the the untrained women that we just went over, their results basically contradicted what was classically known as the interference effect, which is what a lot of other studies show before, which interference effect means there's going to be some sort of impaired increase in maximal strength and muscle hypertrophy if you're concurrent training, so if you're incorporating resistance training. However, because this study contradicted that, it's more dependent on the amount of training sessions you're actually doing within a given week or a given month. So they used a pretty, they, they kind of pushed the edges in, in their particular study. I think they did five total sessions a week. And it's really not until you start incorporating s- session number of six or more and assuming that these are pretty high intensity that, yeah, you're gonna, you, it's a zero sum game. You're gonna see one, one of those modalities decrease and while the other stays the same or also increases so this is where obviously we're going to prioritize and and you do this with the runners if they just finished the peak of their season they just finished track and in the spring and now they're on a deload or a pivot or whatever uh this is a good time to to focus on strength and hypertrophy because they're not going to be running nearly as much if at all right and I'm going to finish with with this. So we'll we'll focus on talking about the endurance athlete here now. For my final thoughts, getting back to does that athlete have a big difference between their counter and non-counter, for example? Does it indicate if they don't have a big difference between the two? Do the, do they need more power, right? Because they should definitely be able to counter jump and get it you know in general a few inches higher okay then then their non-counter jump so does that mean that you do a bunch of plyometrics with them right away no but you would emphasize again at least some movements that were more about recruiting more fast twitch or emphasizing more speed. So again, I say speed on the bar, but that could be in and doing, say, some clapping push-ups or just anything that is going to be a bit more explosive. That's why I don't take out explosive work at any time of the year. It's just all in perspective. But of course, there are some athletes that are going through, you know, some joint pain or an injury, and they're not going to do things like that. But you can still get creative with reactive bands and working through positions where it doesn't cause pain, but yet they're still able to go faster. And that is something that I do like to incorporate with most of my endurance athletes. They need to do this. It's just getting back to the jump rope, for example, that's speed, right? But very, very low impact, especially, I mean, if they can't coordinate that with the jump rope yet, and they're pulling their feet back and then bending their knees instead of just being a stiff pogo, then they're jamming their joints. And so I don't, I, that just shows me they don't have the skill set. but we take the jump rope away and we do something like a pogo and they're able to train those variables. But that's just an example of how you can do a very low level plyometric type of movement, but really start to increase speed. And that can be incorporated really at any time throughout their training uh, year, even when the emphasis is going to be on strength development. Yeah. All right. I know it was probably a little longer than we thought, but hey, if you're an endurance athlete out there, don't be afraid of strength training or concurrent training. As long as it's done properly, you're going to see a lot of benefits come from those. And uh, shameless plug here. If you're kind of confused or not sure where to start here at Pandola Training, we have programs that are well-designed that will fit your goals as an endurance athlete. So feel free to reach out to us. And uh, we'll provide the links to these studies in the show notes. And I'll try to dig up that one you were talking about, Matt, because uh, I'm curious now. And we'll hopefully be able to put that in there, too. Yeah. And I would say, guys, that whenever you have specific questions about what you're doing in your own training, it's important to, um, to, to find out what the answers are or can be by a qualified professional. So, again, you know, I'm a little bit biased here. It's what, what we do for, you know, for a profession, but uh, that there is a reason why I do this for a living. I feel pretty uh, strongly that you need to have a good plan and you need to have um, good structure and good advice behind what you're doing. Don't just haphazardly jump it back into the gym after this whole 
you know, COVID has been going on and, and now you're just going to, like uh, we were talking about before, you're just going to go at it 100%, you know, ramp up slowly back into this, right? And that's, you know, that's just something that I really feel strongly about giving yourself time to adjust. And I do think that before we completely wrap it up, right, I do want to just tell you that most of the time when I'm looking at athletes that have gone through one injury or another, we can, we can look at when they really did uh, too much overreaching too long, too soon. And then the athlete just shakes their head and it's like, I thought that that was good. I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. I, you know, I wanted to be able to get back to where I was before or I want to get to where so-and-so is now, and it's like I'm in a rush to do that. <laughs> Look, you might have a competition coming up. You might have a, a certain race that you have in your mindset to get ready for. But guess what? If you, if you do too much too soon, your body is not going to make more adjustments at once just because you overload it at once. And if you do miss training because you're injured or because you're just so fatigued or just mentally burnt out, you don't feel like doing it again, be honest with yourself. You're probably getting into some of these training sessions. You're supposed to be more uh, geared up for a high intensity day or a quality day, but you're just not mentally or physically ready for it again. And, and it's just like kind of a crappy day for you. And if you have too many of those, I mean, everybody has those days once in a while, but if you're having too many of those days, you're probably programming in too much quality work. And sometimes when you really take a look at things, you realize, ah, that really wasn't an easy day. I kind of made that another quality day. Yeah. I have nothing else to add. I think uh, figurative mic drop route. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. So uh, once again, if you like us, then like us, right? Subscribe to us. Tell your friends about us. Please do share Pandola Project podcast some with somebody today that you realize needs to hear this information. Just you're listening to this right now. Go ahead and send it. Text it to your friend, right? Share our show. That would be greatly appreciated. Of course, if you want to write us a review, that's appreciated too. Giving us a review, giving us stars, sharing our podcast. It's how we grow. It's the only way we grow. So we would really appreciate any love and support you have for us there. Be sure to email us any questions you have. You can email my wife. Aaron at PandolaTraining.com is the email we use for that. You can also go to our website. So that is PandolaTraining.com. You can sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. Oftentimes, the things that we're talking about in these podcasts are in the newsletter in more specifics and in more detail. So you can review that. But we also put a lot of information in the newsletters that are not on the podcast so a lot to know and review there and until next time guys we're out